Well, it's hard to believe, but here we are. It's Christmas 2018. Some 2,000 years have come and gone since God became a man. And every year, men, women, and children all over the world have gathered together at this time of year and throughout the year, week by week, to celebrate what God has done. And so every Christmas, it's a good time to ask ourselves and to refresh ourselves in the gospel. What is this gospel that we celebrate? What, what is the gospel of, of Christmas that fills us with hope and joy and peace, as we just sang? How would you articulate it? Has anyone asked you recently what it is that you believe? What is the reason for the hope that you have? And what is your answer to them? Are you ready to give a defense? What is the gospel that pours out from you? I want to acknowledge that the gospel has an infinite height and depth and breadth. So, so this question almost is not a fair question. What is the gospel? Well, we could point to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, or we could say the gospel is all four. Or, or we could go to the book of Romans and say that that is maybe the, the most complete doctrinal treatise that would give us all of the knowledge and, and the statements of fact and truth that we need to articulate the gospel. And you've maybe heard of the Roman road. We can talk about the incarnation of God. We can look to the cross, and the gospel better include the cross. But the gospel can never be emptied of its glory. We, we can't actually answer this question with any kind of fullness. All we can do, day by day, week by week, season by season, year after year, decade after decade, until our life runs out, is explore the depth of the good thing that God has done. You won't get to the bottom of it. So this morning, what I want to do is ask this question, what is the gospel, by beginning by asking another question. And this will serve as a gateway into the, the bigger question of what is the Christmas gospel that we are so excited about. I want to ask you this question, who do you think is the most mentioned person in the Bible? If you went to Sunday school, you might say, Jesus. He's definitely the most referenced, the, definitely the most alluded to. Uh, there's no, he is the center of salvation history. He's actually the center of all reality, but he's not the most mentioned person in the Bible. If you're just looking at how many times does the name get mentioned. Yeah, you, probably, you guessed it, Jay, because we've been, we've been talking about this guy. David. David is the most mentioned person in the Bible. Let's just take a look. I did a little statistical analysis. This is kind of interesting to me. Ezekiel is on the short end. He's only mentioned twice. That doesn't mean he's not important. He's got a great big book that you should read sometime. Uh, and then on the other end, you have David that is mentioned 1,141 times. If you take a look at the patriarchs, Adam is mentioned 21 times, Noah 57 times, Isaac 133 times, all of the Josephs of the Bible, because I just didn't have enough time to like look at them up individually, uh, all of the Josephs 253 times, Abraham 312 times, Jacob 386 times, and Judah, that's both the man and the tribe and the kingdom, 847 times. More than that is David. If you look at the prophets, they, they come out this way. Ezekiel with twice, Isaiah 54 times, 
Daniel 82 times, Elijah 101 times, Samuel 142 times, Jeremiah 149, all of the Joshua's, several of them, 222 times, and Moses comes in with a bronze in the Bible with 852 mentions. Let me just do a a few more uh, statistics here for you. David is mentioned 310 times more than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob combined. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are really important. They get mentioned a lot as a foundation of what we believe, the foundation of what God is doing in the world. So you put all of them together, and David is mentioned more than 300 times more. Look at this one. David is mentioned 67 times more than Moses and all of the Joshua's combined. Again, Moses and Joshua were a big deal in the Bible. Moving into the New Testament, David is mentioned 684 more times than Peter, Paul, and all of the Johns combined. David is, now listen, this is kind of an interesting stat. I mean, these stats don't mean much. They're all making the same point. But we're going to get to the point. But this is interesting. David is mentioned 77 more times than all of these people put together. Ezekiel, Eve, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth, Adam, Isaiah, Mary, Josiah, Noah, Sarah, Daniel, Elijah, Hezekiah, Isaac, John, and Samuel. You take all of those very big key players in salvation history, you count the number of times they're mentioned, and and David is mentioned 77 times more. And David is mentioned 170 times more than the name of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is the focus of every part of the Bible, but as far as the mentions, the number of times his name is mentioned, David is more. The only names that come close to David are Jesus, Moses, and Judah. Very important names. The next most popular name is Jacob, which is mentioned only a third as much as David. 34%. So what does this tell us? I don't want to make too much of this. Uh, we can't, it's not an equal one-to-one. It's not as though uh, David is 500% more important than Ezekiel. Ezekiel got two mentions. David is over 1,100. It's not, it's not what I'm saying. So we don't want to say one-to-one, the number of times the name is in the Bible is a direct correlation to how important that person is in the Bible. Clearly, Jesus is the most important. However, it does tell us that David's a really big deal. David is so present in in the Scriptures that any formulation of the Gospel had better factor him in. When you're thinking about what is the gospel, what is it that we're celebrating on Christmas, I hope that we're beginning to see that we have to ask ourselves, well, what's that got to do with David? What does the birth of Jesus Christ have to do with David? And it's more than just saying, well, he's the son of David, although that's true. Well, what's the significance of that? What does it matter that, David, or that Jesus is the son of David? Our articulation of the gospel, I hope, at South Shore will begin to incorporate David. That, that our, our worldview, our, our biblical theology, our understanding of God's Word would say that God did something amazing through Jesus Christ and, and one of the main avenues through which He did that was through David and David's house. Last week we asked the question, what does the rise of David have to do with Christmas? Christmas. 
And we answered it by saying, well, if you were alive just before Jesus was born, you have a very clear expectation that a king would be born to reign over Judah, all Israel, and the nations. And so we really looked at Christmas from an Old Testament point of view. Now, those who were very careful with their scriptures would say, well, there's also Isaiah 53, yes and yes. But the predominant expectation was the birth of a king, a king who would reign with justice and righteousness. This week, we're going to ask the same question, and we're going to come up with a very similar answer. But what I want to do this week, if last week we tried to get before the birth of Christ and and ask ourselves, what would we anticipate by the birth of the Son of David? Today what I want to do is step back and take a look at the whole Bible and say, what is the gospel story? What is it that God has been doing from beginning to end? And then I want to contextualize the cross within the broader expanse of the gospel. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us. Give us a big, fearful view of the gospel. Help us to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his power, in all of his royalty as a king coming on the clouds to reign with justice and righteousness over Judah and all Israel and the nations. God, expand our view, enrich our worship of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, our God and King. I pray this in his name. Amen. If we're going to have a big view of the gospel, we have to go back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, they lived in a perfect kingdom where justice and righteousness prevailed, but they rebelled against God, and so they were kicked out of the garden, and they were in exile from God, but God kept them alive, and they produced the next generation, which brought the next generation, but it wasn't long before you get to Noah, and everything is a total mess, and God looks down, and he says, "I, I repent that I created humankind. I'm going to destroy them, but God saved Noah and his family, and he gave them a new heavens, and a new earth in which they came out and they repopulated the world. And we get to Genesis 11. And you'll remember that God said to Adam and Eve and God said to Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, uh, go out, spread out over, over the world. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the created order. Represent me in the world. But we get to Genesis 11 and the one people on the face of the earth, they're not spreading out, they're gathered together at Babel. And they're in open rebellion against God. You want us to spread out? We won't do it. We're going to gather together and we're going to build ourselves a tower to heaven. And we're going to come up and we're going to knock on your door so we can see you face to face as equals. And that's being charitable. They were in rebellion against God. They were their own gods And they were one nation, one people with one language that were in rebellion against God. So God came down and he confused their languages and he dispersed them and made them into many nations. And that's why we have many nations today. God 
You don't want to spread out over the face of the earth? Well, I will compel you to spread out by confusing your languages, by creating amongst this one nation, this one people, many peoples and many nations, and I will force you to spread out. So at this point, we have now many nations in rebellion against God, multiplying the problem. So from this dispersed people of many nations, salvation history very intentionally tracks the line of one man, Shem. And the second half of Genesis 11 just follows Shem's line until you get to Terah and then to Abraham. So you have all these nations, all these families, all these people groups, all these different genealogical lines that we could have followed, and world history tries to do that. But the Bible follows one line, from Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham. And what God is saying is, in spite of all of the nations that are in rebellion against me, I'm going to do something through this one line. And through Abraham, God delivers the gospel. And the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So from the nations, God is going to create a new nation. One nation. And what's God going to do through this one nation? And I will bless you. I'll bless your nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families, all of the nations that are in open rebellion against me, I will bless. So what God is doing there is he's saying, of all the nations in rebellion against me, I'm going to create a new nation. And through this one nation, I'm going to bless all the other nations. We need to see that. That becomes so key to the gospel. Through one nation, God blesses all the nations. Well, how is God going to do that? He doesn't tell us in Genesis 12. We just, we're just told that those who bless this one nation will be blessed, and those who curse this one nation will be cursed. We get a little more information. We talked about this last week in Genesis 17, verse 6. God is always just giving us as much information as he wants to. He doesn't give us all of the information. That's what the whole Bible is about, is he just unfolds the gospel story like an onion, just one layer after another. We get another layer in Genesis 17, 6. How is God going to bless the nations through this one nation that he creates through Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, says God to Abraham, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Something about the gospel is this, that as God creates a new nation to bless all the other nations, how is he going to bless all of the nations through that one nation? We're told in 17.6, that it's going to be through a king. There's going to be a king that comes to the nation that God creates through Abraham that is going to be the channel of God's blessing for the nations. And then, without going back and redoing what we did last week, we see the same promise of kingship given to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And the same promise, which is implicit to Isaac, but explicit to Jacob. 
kings are going to come from you. And then very specifically at the end of Genesis, this promise of blessing through one nation, through the king of that nation, lands on Judah. You're the, you're the lion. And the scepter's not going to depart from between your feet and all your brothers will worship you and the obedience of all the nations will be given to you. Okay. By the end of Genesis, we, we get a little bit about what God is doing. God creates a nation. He chooses a king from this nation. And then he sets this king to reign over all of his brothers. That's Israel, this nation, Abraham's family. And he's also going to reign over all of the nations. So what we have at the end of Genesis is this idea that God is going to save the world. God is going to bless the world through a king born in the line of Judah to the family of Abraham, this new nation that God has created. Well, that's great. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 7, we find out that this king from the tribe of Judah is going to come from the house of David. See, what God is doing in salvation history is just whittling everything down for us until it comes to a point. So there's going to be a king that comes from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah, from the house of Jacob, from the family of Abraham, and this king is going to be a blessing, the channel of salvation for Israel and the nations. Okay, but how? How? And that's where I want us to take a look at Psalm chapter 2. Open to Psalm 2. In this psalm, we're told that God has set his king on Zion. And, and what I've done in this intro is set up all the major themes that are in Psalm 2. The nations, rebellion, salvation, and blessing through a king. That's all in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is quickly becoming my favorite psalm. I, I love Psalm 2. So that if, if I die and you're still alive, read this at my funeral. I love it. it the promise of the gospel is right here in Psalm chapter 2. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 3 just to set this up. And as I'm reading this, remember Babel. Remember that at Babel there was one people, one nation in rebellion against God. So God came down and made them into many nations, many peoples with different languages and cultures. And now we have many nations in rebellion against God ever since Genesis 11. And that's the reality that is picked up at the beginning of this psalm. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is just the reality of human history. Ever since the garden, ever since Adam rebelled, Adam was the first king of the world and he rebelled. And then his offspring rebelled. 
And we've been in this open rebellion against God, whether we're one nation or many nations. It's this reality. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed? Why do we, why do we work so hard against the kingship of God in our lives? It's, it's because there's a rebellious spirit in fallen humanity. We hate God. We, we hate His reign over our lives. And the world today is still in this situation. Every nation on earth, every nation, even Israel today, is in open rebellion against God. Why? Because of sin. They want to break apart the bonds of God. They want to cast their cord, the cords of God away. What that means is, do, you do not tell me what to do. That's what we say to God. We burst the bonds. You're, you're trying to tie me down. And I, I see this in my own daughter. She, she doesn't want a father to tell her what to do and when to do it. It's deeply ingrained in the human condition. So what's God going to do? Take a look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. But He will speak to them in His wrath. He will terrify them in His fury. For He said, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now for 21st century Canadian Christians, these verses don't make sense. What do you mean that God is up in heaven laughing? Well, what's going on there is God says, do you think you're something? You, you think you're anything without me? You think that your rebellion against me can be at all successful? It is by my grace that you're drawing breath right now to build your nuclear weapons and, and, and to build your arms for war. I'm the one that is giving you the, the ability to wake up and, and make millions of dollars. I'm the one that is uh, giving you breath and, and pumping your heart so that you can oppress your neighbor. I just give the word and, and everything is done. You're gone, you're over, you're dead. And then the judgment. God, God laughs, you're nothing compared to me. But then this is, verse 5 is the part that we 21st century Canadian Christians really struggle with. What do you mean the Lord will speak to them in His wrath? God's solution is wrath? It doesn't sound like Christmas. God will terrify us in His fury? He's furious with us? He's going to terrify us? And who's the agent of his wrath? Who's the agent of his fury? Verse 6. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's verse 6 saying? Verse 6 is not a kumbaya kind of verse. I'm going to bring a king to Zion, says God. And he will reign with justice and righteousness, and your rebellion is coming to an end. That's what God says. It's exactly what we see in verses 7 through 9. 
God's solution is to put down the rebellion? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is the Davidic king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's the image here? If you're into pottery, you can make a pot out of clay. So let's just fill this stage with clay pots. The image is God's king comes with a rod of iron and he smashes all the pots until they're broken into a fine dust. That's God's solution? Adopted by God, the Davidic king becomes God's representative on earth. And God gives this king the nations as his inheritance. He empowers and calls this king to rule with absolute coercive force. He calls this king, his son, to bring the open rebellion of the nations to an end. Once and for all. This doesn't sound like Christmas, does it? We'll get there. Verses 10 to 12 are really important. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Oh, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There's a glimpse at the end of this psalm of the hope of salvation from the reckoning that is coming on the earth. And this glimpse says that there is an opportunity for us to seek refuge in the Son, the, the Davidic King set on God's holy hill. That if we make an alliance with Him, if we kiss the Son, and, and really that's, that's a reference, the imagery is this. Here you have the Davidic King in all of His regal splendor in Jerusalem. And, and the image there is of anyone from any nation Right? Oh, kings, be wise. They represent all of the nations. So the invitation is for us as well to come and humbly kneel before the Davidic king and kiss his signet ring. He will 
grant you access, entrance into His kingdom. He will not destroy you as with a rod of iron if you but kiss Him. But make no mistake, the rest will be destroyed. The rebellion will be quelled. The message of this psalm then is submit or die. Submit or die. For God will not put up with open rebellion forever. That's the gospel. God has a solution. He's going to stop the rebellion. And he will give entrance to those who make an alliance with him through the Davidic king. Now, of course, we have a theological and a historical problem. And I'm not talking yet about the cross. Don't rush to the cross. Not yet. I'm talking about the total failure of David and his sons to execute God's furious wrath. Now, had David and his successors manifested the righteousness of God, had they ruled with justice and righteousness, had they been without sin, then they would have, this would have been the gospel, full stop. David or one of his sons who is full of, of righteousness and sinlessness would have been able to put down the rebellion of the nations. But here's the problem. The rebellion of the nations was internalized in the Davidic king. You were here this fall. David himself was in open rebellion against God by the way he lived his life. He was a sinner. So he can't do what Psalm 2 is calling him to do. He's a part of the problem. Thus, by 586 B.C., we're no further ahead than we'd been in Genesis 11. This is one of the great frustrating things about the Old Testament. You think you're making progress until, bam, you're just all the way back at Genesis 11. And if you're at Genesis 11, you're all the way back at Genesis 3. We've got a problem. We've got, we've got humanity in rebellion against God. It was just one person in rebellion or two. Then it became many, and so God destroyed them and brought them down to one family again. They became many, but they became one nation, and then God made them into many nations, and the problem just multiplied. So God creates a new nation. Oh, thank goodness. Be the blessing of the world. And from that one nation, one king. Surely one king can get it right. No. Every time we seem to be making progress, we're all the way back at the root of the problem. All of the nations of the world, even Jacob, even Israel, even Judah, nay, even David, and David's sons are in open rebellion against God. What's God going to do? He's going to keep his promises. He made unconditional promises about salvation through a family that became a nation and through a king that comes from that nation. He's going to keep his promises to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and to David. We haven't looked at this yet, but in 2 Samuel 7, I reference it a lot, God made unconditional promises to David that, that his son after him would build an, uh, a house for his name, that he would uh, sit on David's throne forever and ever. And therefore, God is going to be true to his word and he's going to raise up for himself a king. 
in the line of David who will bring the rebellion of the nations to an end. The rebellion of Israel and Judah and David included to an absolute end. I want you to look at this picture. I had a dopey lion, a nice looking lion, a regal looking lion. Lion of the tribe of Judah. But it just didn't do what the image of the Bible is intending to do. Just listen as I read Genesis 49.9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? It's not a circus lion that's being prophesied. This is, a, this is a lion crouched over his prey, over the nations. Who dare rouse him? The image that we get in Genesis 49, and every time we talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is what God has in mind. A ferocious lion that will be God's agent of wrath to put down once and for all the rebellion against God. This is the image that should come to us when we read, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's an angry lion, a hungry lion, a possessive lion, a powerful lion, a, a roaring lion, a charging lion, a lion that you don't want to mess with, a lion you don't want to see. Which is why in the book of Revelation, who is worthy to open the scroll? The scroll is the end of history. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one that will come and bring history to its full end by putting down the rebellion of the nations. But when John looks to see the lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb. But before we get to the lamb, we rush to the lamb don't we? It's hard to preach the gospel that's focused on the lion. But if we don't, it empties the lamb of his sacrifice. It empties the lamb of his power. It empties the lamb of his glory and beauty for those of us who are saved. Until we reckon with the fact that God is going to send the line of the tribe of Judah to put an end to the rebellion, the Lamb means next to nothing for us. And so our lives look just like our unbelieving neighbor's lives. But when we reckon with the Gospel as written, when we see the line of the tribe of Judah, when we, we, we sit in Psalm 2 at Christmas, <laughs> then the Lamb means something. You know, the Bible ends 
not with a picture of the lamb, but with a picture of the lion. Go to Revelation chapter 19. I want you to remember, what's the gospel? What's salvation history? Open rebellion against God. It was one people, one nation, became many nations. So God created a new nation, chose one tribe from that nation and one king from that tribe. But that king rebelled against God and his sons rebelled against God. And that king was supposed to put down the rebellion, but he joined the rebellion against God. So God sends forth a son through the line of that king who would not be in rebellion against God. That's Christmas. You see, Jesus is the promised king from the line of David, but there's no rebellion in him. Now, before we transition to the cross, what we have to remember is the fact that there's no rebellion in Christ against God means that he is fit for and qualified to bring an end to the rebellion of the nations. If, if we don't see that, the cross doesn't make full sense. Mandate number one for God's Son is to stop humanity's rebellion, and He'll do it with a rod of iron. That's what this says. I'm going to read this now. This is the Word of God. This is about the return of Christ. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. No rebellion. He's faithful. He's true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. The Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. He who is seated in the heavens laughs. The beast was captured 
And with it, the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceives those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You see, he was going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That's right out of Psalm 2. You see, God's gospel is bigger than the cross. It's not more than the cross. It's just more expansive. What then is the gospel? How might we articulate it to ourselves this Christmas? When humanity was one people and one nation, we rebelled against God. So God dispersed us into many nations, and as many nations, we continued in rebellion against God. So God chose for himself one nation, Israel, and from one nation, God chose for himself one tribe, Judah. And from that one tribe, God chose for himself one clan, Jesse. And from that one clan, God chose for himself one royal dynasty, the house of David. And even though David and his dynastic house sinned greatly, joining the nations in their rebellion against God, from the house of David, God chose for himself one son, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God. And this one son of David, this one son of God, filled with righteousness and justice, faithful and true, will, at the end of history, put an end, finally, once and for all, to the rebellion that is laboring against God, both in heaven and on earth. He will kill both human in demonic powers and throw them into the lake of fire. Now we have a context for the cross. What if God did this gospel work without dying for our sins on a cross? We all die. Because we were in rebellion against God. The amazing thing about Christmas is that God sent the lion of the tribe of Judah into the world as our Passover lamb before he would come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But if you don't see that he's coming again to do what we've talked about this morning, it doesn't have the same power. See, Jesus 
grants us entry into the kingdom. He will not destroy us if we kiss the Son. How do we do that? We give Him our sins. We say, carry it, O King! Take my sin to the cross. So that when you come back, as the Son of David, full of justice and righteousness, I will not fall by the sword that comes from your mouth. I will not be tread down in the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty because you were pressed down for me when you bled and died for my sins, when you died in my place on the cross. So at Christmas, what I want us to focus on is that Christmas is the birth of the lion of the tribe of Judah, but it's also the birth of our Passover lamb. And we get to choose. How will you meet Christ? Will he be a lion? Or will he be a lamb? The broader arc of salvation history is about God's coercive violent suppression of our rebellion. Praise be to God that inside that broader ark He found a way to save some. We who kiss the Son, who give our sin to God to die in our place, we who say, I submit Please end the rebellion here. We are very much then in the middle of this story as it unfolds. Too often we look back on Christmas and say it's a, it's a finished story. Christ came, he died, I'm saved, I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. And if you're Rich theologically, you say, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But we're in the middle of the story because the king's coming back. Will you be ready to meet him when he does? Without the rise of David, we have no gospel because David's house is the house that puts an end to our rebellion. Praise be to God, he saved us through this one king. Let's pray. Oh God, this is just an amazing, glorious truth that you've shown us. That our King, who is faithful and true, who has never rebelled against you, not ever, also died because we did rebel against you so that when he returns to put down our rebellion we would not fall by the sword that comes from his mouth God thank you there is no greater gift that we could ask for or unwrap this Christmas than to remember 
all that you've done for us to save us from your justice. And we praise you for it. Jesus, the lion, the tribe of Judah, who is our Passover lamb. In his name we pray. Amen.